Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. And today, we're here for this uh, book of uh, different artists uh, doing an anthology of classic tales and drawn by uh, wonderful artists, including today's guests. And um, I'm gonna just I'll make a little introduction to all three of them and then we'll introduce the first one. Um, Bobby London is the creator of the comic strip character Dirty Duck and a founding contributor to National Lampoon. His illustrations have appeared in Esquire, Rolling Stone, New York Time, New York Times, um, Punk Magazine, Village Voice, and many more, and was nominated for a Grammy, he was, in 2005 for his comic book, included with Weird Tales of the Ramones. Um, after him, we'll have Vanessa Davis, who's the author and artist of Spano Rage, and her latest book is Make Me a Woman. And then Gigi DG, who is the writer and illustrator of Cucumber Quest. But first up, we'll have Bobby London. Hi. Um, I'm usually I'm I'm used to hiding behind an easel, so uh, I never had to read my own cartoons in front of people before. I usually just sit in the room alone and go, "Ha ha ha!" It's really funny. So, um, so this is a whole new thing. So, um, and also uh, I'm sort of known as being a stranger to the children's field, having drawn for many years. Uh, showing grown men acting like idiots, six-year-olds. <laughs> so now I, so the, uh, I was given a, a real break by being allowed to do a comic in Nickelodeon magazine for, for about three years and learning the ropes of what it's like to draw for kids. And it's a wonderful experience. And so I will start with the Brothers Grimm. Uh, familiar territory for me because they were like mean and cruel and depressing and <laughs> I had to take a really awful story and make it cheerful or I, or I thought I had to maybe I didn't have to but <laughs> but I did anyway because <laughs> it was fun and uh, I don't know I, I, I drew a fairy and it, it's called fairy tales and so I changed one character into a fairy <laughs> that was fun um, and uh, it's a contemporary story about hunger, which is just what kids want to hear about, right? <laughs> uh, and it's called it's called Sweet Porridge, and it opens with a depressing tableau of a lot of villagers walking around very hungry, with nothing to eat, and it starts like this: Once upon a time, there was a poor little girl named Emma who lived in a poor little town where everyone was hungry and spent their days dreaming of sweet porridge <laughs> by Bobby London and the Brothers Grimm. <laughs> 
Now Emma lived in a poor little house with her poor little mother and her poor little brother. And there's also a poor little one-eyed dachshund sitting on the floor there. And she's the only one who's not dreaming of food. I don't understand why that is. Now mom, mother, had but a penny to her name. And she decided to take it to the market. And she, like in most grim fairy tales, she leaves the kids all alone. And she's saying, look after Herman, dear. Herman's the brother. And there's a little arrow pointing to Herman, so you know that Herman's the brother. And Herman was so hungry, he couldn't keep quiet. And there he is screaming, going, Wow, yeah, I'm hungry! And poor Emma's holding her ears. So Emma went into the woods with their only cooking pot to look for berries. And Herman is still screaming his lungs out, sticking his head out the window. And on her way to the forest, she suddenly saw a very bright light. And there she is staring at the porridge fairy floating in the ether and glowing like a lava lamp, saying, I am the porridge fairy, and your troubles are over. And at the top of the lungs, at top of her lungs, the fairy said, Cook, little pot, cook. And it did just that. And there it is, just going nuts, and there's porridge flying out of the pot. Then again, she yelled, Stop, little pot, stop! It did that, too. Much to Emma's surprise, and you know that because there's an exclamation point overhead. Now remember, you must always speak your loudest, or it will never hear you. And she disappeared back into the ether where all fairies go. With that, she vanished. Well, Emma jumped for joy, and she went to tell her brother. And with great care, she whispered in his ear, If you yell, cook, little pot cook, it will! And now there's an exclamation point over her brother's head. <laughs> He's in shock. He never heard such a thing in his life. Now, Emma's a young child. She's older than her little brother by a few years, but she's still a kid. And she for forgot all the rest of it, and she runs off to get mother before she was done. Yay! She says, totally forgetting the rest of the spell. And Herman only knew half a spell. And there he is, staring back into the dark, poor little house, with the light dramatically streaming into the living room. And the pot is casting a long shadow here, as you can tell. Cook, little pot, cook! And indeed it did. It cooked, and it cooked, and it cooked some more. And Herman is just like skipping his little brains out in the background. Woohoo! Whoopee! Yay! <laughs> Woo! But the pot wouldn't stop. And so there's Emma and her mom coming home. And there's some sort of ruckus going on behind their door. And as you well know, it goes. 
and out comes all his porridge because he did not know the words. And there he is surfing on porridge. There, hanging ten with his little pot. And it kept on cooking. It went down the alleyway of the little village. It went into a house and carried a total stranger into a lady's boudoir. And it even kind of spilled over into other fairy tales, as you can see, you know. There's so much of it, it just spilled over into the three little pigs while they're playing their fife and fiddle about the big bed wolf. <laughs> and I guess that's King Midas there counting his money. Although he's got all the greedy, the greedy kings and, uh, you know, the, all the starving peasants there. He's just laughing, counting his money. And <laughs> it knocks him right off of his, uh, off of his uh, chair. And it kept on cooking, and kept on cooking, and cooking, and cooking. And it kept on cooking, and it didn't stop. And it just didn't stop until Emma finally yelled, Stop, little pot! Stop! And it did. But by that time, the town was flooded with sweet, sweet porridge. And there are all the inhabitants there, like drowning in the stuff. They're going head first, and, it's, and they're all sitting on, their, on, on the roofs of their little village cottages, just chomping away at it. And they were never hungry again. Thank you. I have a feeling you have read before out loud. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So next we have a Vanessa Davis, and she's going to be reading her take on Puss in Boots. 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 <laughs> Do you have a book? Um, Here. Use that one. Hi. <laughs> I'm Vanessa, and I drew Puss in Boots. And I had never actually read this story before. I saw the movie starring Antonio Banderas, <laughs> um, which I really liked a lot. But um, I am, I don't have a cat, but I really like cats. I'm kind of a cat coveter. And so I, I used this experience to draw this cat as puffy and stupid and cute as possible. Um, to just really get into the cat zone since I couldn't be in it in real life. So um, it was sort of my own personal fairy tale of being a pet owner. But um, so <laughs> I drew Puss in Boots and like um, Bobby's story, it's also a sad story of poverty and desperation um, gone well. Um, when we meet our uh, hero, it's in a little house belonging to a miller who just died. A poor miller died, leaving little for his three sons. The oldest one gazes across his dead father's body and says, dibs on the mill. <laughs> the middle one desperately grabs and says, I'm taking this donkey. And then the little puss in boots says, Guess there's nothing left for you to inherit but me. <laughs> Dingaling. Um, the youngest one is happy for a minute. Oh, kitty. But then he realizes 
Poor me. After I eat up this cat and make a muff out of its fur, I must then die of hunger. Shush. Don't say stuff like that. Look, I need you to get me a pair of some teeny tiny boots. And so the young son goes to the itty bitty bootery thinking about <laughs> the money that he doesn't have spending on this ridiculous idea. But he is very obedient and he does what he's told. And the little cat says, you'll see, I've got a plan. I'm not as dumb as I look. <laughs> he goes to the bunny patch with his new boots and a little sling full of vegetables. And he says, I shall now scamper through the dirt and brambles. And then he decides to play dead and acting completely not scary or, or threatening in any way. There's this bunny that he sees, or sees him rather, with some carrots uh, falling out of his satchel. And the bunny thinks it's okay to come close, but then the cat snatches him up. And then he goes to visit the king, and he's met by the king's butler, who welcomes him in. He says, yes, kitty, please follow me. <laughs> And he presents the bunny to his royal highness. For you, your highness. And the king is delighted. Bunny! <laughs> this is a gift from my master, Lord Pistachio. Which he just kind of made up on the top of his head. <laughs> and with this exchange, the cat's plan went into effect. So he basically has an activity medley where he's spending time chasing chickens, giving chickens to the king. The king is a, a bigger animal lover than I am, apparently. He's just so happy to have the company of chickens and bunnies. At the same time, he decides that he might try a little bit of grooming on this young son, so he uses his grooming tongue to give him a better hairdo. He finds, he finds the king a little goose with a, with a ribbon, and the king is just beyond thrilled. And then he uses his own body as a barbell <laughs> to help the young son get, gain better definition in his biceps. <laughs> and then it all culminates on this special day. Wake up, kid. Today's the day. The king's taking a drive with his daughter, Princess Beautiful. Then he throws him into the lake. Okay, you take a bath. And the young son is having a great time playing with a beach ball in the lake. And then at the same time, Puss in Boots hides his clothes under a rock. And then the king and Princess Beautiful come rolling down the road in their monster truck, <laughs> being dr driven by the butler. Help! 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 <laughs> and the king sees his friend, who's bestowed upon him all of these wonderful presents, and he says, Kitty, what's wrong? <laughs> My master, Lord Pistachio, is drowning! Men, go save Lord Pistachio at once. And his life, the royal lifeguard fleet races out to save him. Oh, um, and also, your highness, before he started drowning, bandits stole his clothes. When, you know, who would have thought? <laughs> and then the king summons Jean-Paul. Go outfit Lord Pistachio at once. The king invited Kitty's owner to ride with him and Princess Beautiful throughout the countryside. Who couldn't help? No. Oh, and the king and the princess couldn't help noticing how handsome Lord Pistachio was in his borrowed finery. Oh, it's all about being in the right place at the right time. The kitty rode on ahead, greeting workers throughout the land. 
Hey, so, uh, the king's riding through here. Tell him this grove belongs to Lord Pistachio or I'll arrest you. He tells this to a, uh, just an unassuming orange grove worker. Um, and then they come through, and the king is so impressed by this beautiful orange grove. What a lush orange grove. Tell me, to whom does this land belong? Oh, um, Lord Pistachio, your highness. Lucky you, I just love oranges. Me too. They roll through. There's a big wheat field. And to whom does this golden wheat field belong? Oh, that'd be Lord Pistachio, your highness. Because the cat really got around. <laughs> you own so many fields. <laughs> Who would have guessed? Because he doesn't know what's going on. He's just going with the flow. But then the princess offers, I like oranges too. In truth, the fields belong to a big, terrible ogre who'd stolen them himself long ago. I had to just kind of glaze over that really fast, but include that this isn't a nice ogre. <laughs> then he moved into the castle on the hill overlooking it all. Ahead of the others, Kitty decided to pay him a visit. So he, he approaches the ogre and he says, I've heard a lot about you. I've heard that you can change shape, like into a lion or something. Well, I was about to eat dinner, but okay. <laughs> Pop. He pops into a lion, and the cat squeals, ee! and he's up in the rafters, and then the ogre doesn't want him to worry, so he says, I'm back to normal now, which I don't know why the ogre is less scary than the cat, but or the lion, but anyway. That was neat, but I also heard that you can turn into small things, too, like a mouse or something, but I doubt it. How could that be possible? Hey, I can get tiny. And then he turns himself into a little spider or some kind of bug that would not upset children to see killed. <laughs> and the cat eats him up. And then they all arrive home, and the cat comes out as though he was always expecting them. Welcome home, Lord Pistachio. Welcome, highnesses. I ran ahead to get dinner ready. And they have a big spread, because the ogre was going to have all this stuff for dinner. Fried chicken, and meringue pie, and watermelon. And the princess has an idea, the first one all day. And she says, <laughs> there's already this party all set up. Maybe we should just get married right now. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> he's very agreeable. And the king is into it. He's like, this is a great guy. Fine with me. I love fried chicken. And everybody was invited. Uh, the, um, the orange grove worker and the wheat worker. And there's another worker who and I can't remember what he was working on. And the hen and the bunny and the goose. So you know that they weren't eaten for food. They were just enjoyed for their company. And the kitty napped contentedly over all she surveyed. The end. <laughs> This is really one of our best events for the graphic novel. <laughs> it's really great, you guys. Um, next up, we have um, GGDG, who is a recent graduate of Art Center. I just read, too. I didn't know that. Um, well, welcome. And um, she's, her comic is mostly on the internet, so this is probably pretty cool to see in print. So welcome, GGDG. Hello. Um, 
I'm basically the newcomer out of all of these amazing uh, established illustrators and cartoonists, so it's an honor for me to be here. Um, my comic was Little Red Riding Hood, as you've heard, which is a story about how you should never talk to strangers, ever, because they're wolves and they'll try to eat you. So without further ado, there was once a little girl who always wore a red cape. Everyone called her Little Red Riding Hood. One day, Little Red Riding Hood's mother sent her into the forest to bring lunch to her sick grandma. She says, Remember to be careful and no talking to strangers. Red Riding Hood says, Okay, Mommy. A very hungry wolf was lurking in the woods that day. Seeing Red Riding Hood pass by, he said, Hey, what's a kid like you doing in the woods by yourself? Forgetting her promise not to talk to strangers, even though she had just made it five minutes ago, she replied, My grandma's sick, so I'm bringing her some lunch to make her feel better. The wolf says, lunch, huh? Sounds great. So, where's your grandma live, kiddo? Just that way. Really? Well, why don't you stop and pick a few flowers for her? I bet she'd love that. Red Riding Hood thinks about it. Hmm. Okay. As Red Riding Hood sat and picked flowers, the wolf sneaked off ahead of her. And when she spent enough time in the flower patch, she finally continued on to her grandma's house. Grandma, I brought you some what? Grandma? Yes, dearie. I'm so glad to see you. You sound awful. Oh, it's <coughs> just the cold, sweetheart. Come a little closer. But what big ears you have, Grandma. The better to hear your angelic voice with sugar. But what big eyes you have. The better to see your adorable face with, sweetie. But the whipping teeth you have. The better to eat you with, my dear. And she screams, eek. <laughs> Red Riding Hood screamed so loud, a lumberjack who was chopping wood nearby ran to help. And hearing that there was danger, she threw down her only weapon. She <laughs> hit the wolf's belly, and Grandma came flying out. Grandma, you're okay. Oh, my little Red Riding Hood, thank goodness. I won't talk to strangers anymore. <laughs> and so she didn't. Little Red Riding Hood and her grandma had a nice picnic, and the wolf never bothered them again. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> it's kind of amazing that all these, I mean, besides the three of you, there's some really great artists in here as well, like the Hernandez Brothers and Craig Thompson and stuff. It's a really wonderful book. Um, congratulations, y'all. Um, and also it was interesting just to see the different styles of all the different artists used and the different takes they had on it. Uh, there's not a whole lot of people here, but if you wanted to have any questions of the artists, I'm sure they'd be willing to take, any, take some questions and have some answers if you had anything um, to ask anybody. Um, I can start off. I just, I, I just wanted to ask, um, as a general thing, um, well, Bobby's been around a while longer, and he's had a little more uh, influence, and maybe his influences have influenced you guys, but I was actually wondering what kind of influences might have influenced you, Bobby. Me? Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, even though... Um, I started drawing at a really young age, like a lot of people. You know, I was maybe four or five, and I noticed that I would draw something with my grandfather's pencils, and all the adults in the room would go, oh, that's so beautiful. And I went, oh, this is interesting. I can get a rise out of them. They could do what I want. They'd give me you know, treats and stuff. So I just did, it, did more of it. And um, I, th I think the, what motivated me 
is what uh, motivates most cartoonists uh, is telling stories more than uh, more than anything else. I think kids are natural storytellers, and um, I would in, I would turn rubber bands into characters and just do puppet shows and, and stuff like that, and just make up my own plays and and uh, and while away the hours in the crib. <laughs> and after a while, all the other kids thought it was weird. <laughs> um, so uh, the stuff that got my attention were, was on TV, and oddly enough, uh, those ancient Paul Terry silent cartoons were some of the first things that I saw. And so uh, that's what I thought cartoons were. I thought they looked like that. Uh, they didn't talk. And when cats fell and hit the ground, they turned into five million other cats, you know? And, and everything was in black and white, and the world was a lovely place. <laughs> and I found out later that that's not true. But in the meantime, <laughs> in the meantime, uh, uh, I, I guess it was almost a chronological introduction to comics. And so people think I'm a historian. <laughs> that I know all this stuff but about everything, but actually I just sort of uh, coincidentally learned about this thing in almost the order, order in which it was created. So these, uh, soon after that, uh, I guess it was Mickey Mouse and, um, but puppet shows I think are the biggest influence. Uh, uh, there's this thing called Fudini, which was a magician who was just an all, all knows, and I remember the first uh, Beanie uh, time for Beanie when it was a puppet show, and Beanie was an ugly little kid. <laughs> he wasn't as cute as the cartoons later, and, and these old styles were a lot more grotesque than uh, than modern styles. So, and and that's what people thought was funny like a hundred years ago. Uh, what looks like totally grotesque to us now, they just thought was humorous, and we find clowns scary when they just thought it was funny and clowns were clowns were painted to be seen like in the nosebleed sections of a pantheon so that's why the the uh, the makeups are so broad and natu quite naturally when you see them up close they'll scare the hell out of you right but that was they weren't meant to be seen up close and silent comedians learn their trade in, in on the stage and learn broad gestures and slapstick because because that's they wanted to fill coliseums with people who could barely see these figures and so the, the, the only thing they could do is hit each other over the head to get a laugh out of the audience and um, I think what I'm trying to say is that comedians were more of an influence on me than, than cartoons and I was motivated to make people laugh and to perform. My mother was an opera singer and so I saw her on stage in Pagliacci when I was about five and, and all those colors flying around and there was a clown trying to stab my mother and you know <laughs> I was uh, I didn't I, well, I didn't think it was cool. I, I, that explains a lot about me as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, uh, before, you know, she told me it was it was make believe and everything like that. And later, I found out that it, that uh, he was in love with her, and it was a real knife. <laughs> it was a it was a butter knife, and and he had and and the clown had a real crush on my mother, and he wanted to get back at her, you know. And all this is going on on stage, and everybody's like, like, oh no, <laughs> you know, this is amazing. But um, 
my sister, who was a little older than me, knew better, had nightmares about, uh, that my mother was in a teacup and like flying around an arena and she couldn't talk to her. So, and that represented the stage taking her away from my sister and it terrified her. But I was, and I was a few years younger, so I'm just like, oh, wow, <laughs> look at the colors. There's my mom. <laughs> you know, I wanted, this is what I want to do, you know? And clowns running around. And it was a, a and so I think that's probably what, I have happened to have had a talent for drawing, but I was just more motivated uh, uh, to entertain people. And so maybe going into underground comics was not the right way to go. <laughs> but there you go. You know, I went to Woodstock and I saw 50 million hippies and I figured if each one of them bought a comic book, I'd be rich, you know? So, <laughs> so that's what changed my mind. I, I was thinking twice about it until then, you know? And, uh, and, and when I went out to San Francisco, I met all these guys who were not motivated to entertain people. They were motivated to scare the hell out of them or, you know, or motivated to each other, and and so I was just uh, I was just out of out of my element until the lampoon picked me up, and and uh, that probably made my career and saved me from a, a life of uh, desperation and drug addiction. <laughs> you know, so uh, did that, did I answer your question? <laughs> Th uh, thanks, Doc. <laughs> And of course, I loved Popeye, and I loved Popeye on TV. And, I, and my dad told me he was a comics, a comic character, and and I learned to hate him once I got the job. <laughs> and and that's it. Bye. Yes. Do you want to talk about maybe what you know, the artists or humor or things that you want to say? Well, um, I think that uh, I, you know, I I didn't uh, get into comics. Uh, right away, I, I I went to art school and I fancied myself a fine artiste, and um, it took me a long time to reconcile myself um, with the idea that I would ever draw comics. And um, and so as I've gotten kind of more comfortable being a cartoonist, I've gotten more comfortable being, getting to be a more funny cartoonist. And um, and. Uh, and so I feel like that's sort of like happening to me right now. Um, and so I really liked this uh, this uh, project because I was I don't I haven't done a lot of stuff for kids, and I always think of my work as okay for kids. But then you open up the book and there's like some naked person or something. <laughs> something adult happening. And uh, but you know because I don't think of myself as a particularly edgy edgy person and I write about myself. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling. But um, I, you know, I read I read Betty and Veronica, and I uh, I read like while going through fine art school, I was exposed to a lot of artists that were very that had a really narrative angle or a really figurative angle that kind of spoke to me more because I'm just kind of I was always meant to be a cartoonist whether I liked it or knew it or not, and um, and so. I'm just trying, but there's so much that I didn't see and didn't know about even when I became a cartoonist. So I'm sort of learning as I go, you know, and, and being influenced as I am continuing. So, I don't know. <laughs> 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 Gigi, did you have a particular calling to be a cartoonist? Or? Um, I... Or um, well, I went to school to study um, illustration for like animated films, so I always sort of had an idea of um, what I wanted to go into as far as you know entertaining children. 
which I conveniently brought a copy of. You can look at the cover and tell, but it's, it's um, but this fairy tale comic is sort of very much in my comfort zone. Yeah. Um, I like really cute, like, innocent things. So, um, basically, I guess, um, my goal as a storyteller is to, um, to pour the, um, the happiness that children's media gave me growing up into my own work and to share it with other kids and with us. Um, were these stories assigned to you, or did you actually choose these stories, and, and why did you choose these particular stories, all three of them? Did you choose them? No. <laughs> no, uh, they were assigned, right? Yeah, they were assigned. Uh, I know some people had, I don't know, maybe other people had choices, but I didn't. I I'm didn't. sure that Hernandez brought this out of choice. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, he, uh, Mustafi just called up and, and said he had to, he found a story for me to and he, he told me to look it up because it was available on the internet and tell him whether or not I wanted to do it. And he knows me well enough that he pitches the right story <laughs> yeah. to do. Um, He's you know. really good at, at uh, matching people with what they should be drawing about. Well, he and Dave Roman are cartoonists. Uh, so it's, it always really helps to have an editor who, who at least did it at one time or another or knows how to do it. As much as Hugh Hefner was reviled. Um, he started out wanting to be a cartoonist, and I, we don't always agree with the choices that he makes about stuff, and I'm not talking about everything I'm talking about, because um, uh, he, he's actually a very conservative person in these cases and stuff, but um, at, least he, at least he understands uh, what, what it means to, what, what it means to you know, just sit down and try and bring life to something that's kind of weird. And he's a fan, and like I said, he's a lot of a lot of the underground guys put him down. But uh, but he he's he's given a lot of guys breaks who were having a tough time, like Jack Cole, Kurt Smith, and me. <laughs> so so there so he's a lot of things, but he does like cartoons, and he's, and and it's really murder when an editor does not understand. Do you think you think you have nerve, Chris Duffy, have a lot of <laughs> uh, they could probably talk about comics, yeah. <laughs> but that's about it. Yeah, yeah. I've I've worked with Chris on a couple of other assignments, and I feel like every time he gives me something to draw, I can always see why he would have thought that I before I, you know, because because he's like imagining what I'm going to draw before I even know what the story is, and so it's sort of flattering whenever I get to figure out. When it when it kind of when it finally dawns on me what I'm going to do, because I can see that he anticipated it and you know um, hoped it would happen, and so I, I yeah I had I had never read Puss in Boots when I was a kid, and um, you know I I wouldn't have thought that it would be the story for me, but I loved it every panel. I just got to pour in as much of myself as I could, and I think that Chris knew I would do it. And so yeah, he was, yeah, I think it worked well to have it assigned because I would I don't know that I would have chosen it myself. Oh, um, this was my first time working with Chris, so um, he told me that um, his work was recommended to him by uh, Mr. Rose, um, and he said that my style would be appropriate for writing a 
Nice touch by the Huntsman. Nice touch. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was it was very subtle, but I saw it. Like, oh no, that's cool. <laughs> somebody, somebody who knew your work told him about it. Told, told him to check it out mm. online. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's like, oh, thank you very much. Uh, I have a question for Gigi specifically. Uh, I mean, I've been following you since the uh, High on Daisy live journal days, mm -hmm. and uh, like it's been really interesting watching your watching your storytelling style kind of evolve into more short-term, like gag-heavy video game scripts to, to like the long-form narrative that we're seeing in Cucumber now. Mm -hmm. And my question is just like, do you do you see yourself ever returning to kind of like the the fast-paced joke-driven, like Metal Gear Solid or uh, Professor Layton comics that used to do something in that style. Yeah. I'm pretty focused on my own stories now. Well, I'm not, I'm not talking about like the video game thing. I'm more talking about just the like short-form gag thing. Like, you need to do your own version of, of that kind of Yeah. Um, I don't know that I have any plans for it. <laughs> Most of my, my stories are pretty uh, long form, okay. so yeah. that's pretty much in the future as far as I can see. Okay. <laughs> Did you say that you were doing also like animation too? Oh, uh, no. I studied um, production design for animated films, so oh. basically just uh, painting like concepts, background art. So I see that. You have a question? Oh, no, I was going to say she has this background in art from video games. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we work at a video game company. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, do you work it out in pencils and paper, or, or is it all digital? Um, it's all digital. <laughs> I, I, I know, it's kind of shameful. No, no. <laughs> I want to cast there's this whole thing going on in how, you know, the, Pen, pencil, paper, being killed, and yeah. it's terrible at it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of rough, it, but I'm, you know, I would do it too if I if I had stuff. I don't know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? I you know I don't. My jump, my style would change a lot if I if I stopped using a quill pen because I've been using it all my life. But, I mean. I can work it out. There's the things that that, that I do kid stuff probably look better. So I'm not I'm not like against it. It's just a little frustrating that I've never been able to get a leg up on it. I've been drawing with a computer all my life, so wow. basically it's just what I'm sure. comfortable with. But there are some things like in uh, traditional media you just can't replicate digitally. So yeah. Wow. Thanks. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.